Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast and welcome to 2024 and our first episode of the year. For today's episode, I spoke to Marcus Honeyset. Marcus has been in full-time Christian ministry for 30 years and is the founding director of Living Leadership, an organization that exists to grow disciple-making leaders. He's also the author of several books, including the subject of our conversation, the book Powerful Leaders, subtitled When Christian Leadership Goes Wrong and How to Prevent It. It's a book that I read some time ago, but the relevancy of its message is becoming increasingly apparent, so I thought it'd be good to have a conversation about it. Now, much of what Marcus's book and in fact our conversation centers on is really around the important distinctives of Christian leadership, something that I think you'll find really helpful. But it's worth also pointing something out. Now, I originally reached out to Marcus and suggested that we talk about what I then called spiritual abuse, a term that I've since learned there's a fair amount of disagreement over. In fact, there's question marks about whether the term spiritual abuse is even a helpful or even appropriate term to use in the conversation. This is something I wasn't aware of. And so whilst I may use the term spiritual abuse in our discussion, we instead use the words spiritual harm in the title of this episode, or perhaps even church hurt may be a way of stating things more appropriately. There was recently a report put out by the Evangelical Alliance Theology Advisory Group in 2018 and it concluded that the term spiritual abuse, whilst being well-intended, is not fit for purpose. Quoting from an article on the EA website, it says, The report outlines how spiritual abuse is a seriously problematic term because of its own inherent ambiguity and because attempts by some to embed it within statutory safeguarding discourse and secular law would be unworkable in practice potentially discriminatory towards religious communities and damaging to interfaith relations. Reverend Dr. David Hilborn, chair of the Theological Advisory Group, said that we take the harm caused by emotional, psychological and other forms of abuse in religious contexts very seriously indeed. However, we are deeply uneasy about increasing usage of the unhelpful and potentially misleading term spiritual abuse. We believe the existing legal frameworks of emotional and psychological abuse are sufficient and need to be enforced in religious contexts as in other contexts. Now, I've linked to that article along with the Evangelical Alliance Theological Advisory Group's report in the description to today's episode, along with a report produced by the safeguarding body 318 that was also released in 2018. So if this is a subject or a theme that is of interest to you, you may want to follow those links up. Now, with all of that said, Let's dive into what I think you'll agree is a very helpful, important and timely conversation. Over to Marcus. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Jazz. It's lovely to be with you. It is a joy to have you. And we connected briefly in the summer, had a conversation around several things to do with the topic of, our, of what we're talking about today. I'm really looking forward to uh, all that we're going to talk about. So I know you're a, a very wise man with lot, lots of experience, as we've seen. Um, we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sorry, I don't want to raise expectations. <laughs> um, well, Marcus, when we start with this one, uh, this question, I guess, having been in ministry for many years, um, what are some of, some of, and what have been some of the biggest challenges that you think are facing the, the church in the UK at this time? So at this time, um, I think we have to get used to being in a very different cultural climate to certainly to 20 years ago, uh, or even before 
COVID. And I think that I would characterize it as a climate in which many people feel that their security and hope mechanisms are failing them. And you know, those might always have been inadequate uh, to our need. But I do sense that we're in a cultural climate at the moment where we're trying to uh, speak for Jesus, live for Jesus, uh, win people for Jesus, see the kingdom of God expanding, where uh, disillusionment and fear are really quite palpable. And I think for many people, quite uh, a lack of hope. So some of the things I would identify in that that, that seem to be clear to me would be um, a sort of real anxiety and gloom about the world and the future rather than optimism for a whole set of factors, not always easy to measure, but um, personal ones, global ones, worries about physical uh, health and well-being, perhaps an ability to make ends meet. Mental health seems to me to be a huge problem in the West compared with elsewhere. And then you add in sort of uh, pandemic and post-pandemic exhaustion, wars, climate change, family and marriage breakdown. We all know the stuff, don't we? Uh, all, all kinds of things to do with anxiety, I think, going on. And we'd be right to expect that to affect uh, Christians and churches as well. But I think there are also huge questions going on about identity. What Carl Truman rightly calls a crisis of anthropology. Who are we at the, at the deepest level? Went to um, a uh, choir concert at my son's um, primary school recently, and I noticed that all the songs were full of a sort of disnified individualism. You can be anything you want. Look inside yourself to find your core identity and it's good and just make sure you're kind. So I think there's a lot of that, but then on the other hand, the dawning realization that it doesn't work, but what are the alternatives? You add in individualism to that, relativism taken to its ultimate extent, removing any idea of objective truth or value, including such foundational basics as what it means to be male and female, or even shared views on what it means to be human. And you end up with a landscape on ethical, relational, sexual, gender, global issues that has changed beyond recognition and, and very, very fast. And you know we could go on and on, and listeners will have many other things to add to that list. But it, it seems to me that the generation after me coming up after me does feel that many of the props or foundations that once provided security and hope have just been kicked out from under the floor of their lives until the floor has fallen in. And then at the same time find themselves plugged 24-7 into online popularity contests and mass ideological culture, which just puts you in the centre of a lot of storms. And that produces rapid onset social, political, sexual, psychological phenomena, whilst simultaneously stripping away mechanisms for security and privacy and learning to stand against the tide. So I, I think there are a lot of things going on at the moment uh, that uh, are huge challenges to churches, but what an amazing set of opportunities. Uh, as well that, that 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 provides, because nobody at the moment is thinking that, I don't know, the new atheism and scientific materialism of 20 years ago has, has come through or provided the answers. 
loads of people are thinking that the sexual revolution has comprehensively failed women. Um, and yeah, here we are sitting here with hope, unity, and a great king and a great cause, um, and just a wonderful one to commend to everybody. So I think probably the biggest challenge for churches is how do how are we so alight with him that people are going to go into this week thinking I can live for God like that this week and it'd be great to be great to commend him because he's lovely to me because I'm delighted I'm captivated there's a lot that you threw out there I'm glad that you I'm glad that you took us on a, an arc towards hope because I was beginning to feel a bit overwhelmed <laughs> which but that feeling of feeling overwhelmed um you no doubt in your work with living leadership you come across that a lot just pastors who who are reeling thinking I'm not sure what I should think about so many things that the church has been behind the curve in thinking through and perhaps equipping pastors on how to deal with and then you've got the congregations in the churches who if their pastors aren't teaching them on those things how what are they supposed to think and so we end up being influenced by the people who shout the loudest or who appeal to the strongest emotions within us um yeah. What are some of your reflections then on... on that? I, I think that that is definitely true. Um, shout the loudest and appeal to the strongest emotions. That's a very good way of putting it. So um, and, and a lot of these things come and go. And, you know, just as you're catching up to should I be teaching about that, all of a sudden the issues, the issues moved on and you know, we're in a very rapidly changing world. So the thing I probably most want to say is start with what is upstream and in my view what is upstream is union with christ knowing the scriptures getting captivated as worshipers very very foundational verse for us in living leadership set of verses the end of philippians 1 start of philippians 2 where paul says he's writing from prison he's thinking that I might get executed, be with Christ. I might get released and I want to come with you. And if, I, if so, here's what I want to do with you. I want to work with you for your progress in the faith and your joy in the faith. So you glory abundantly in Jesus with the character of humility that is in Christ Jesus among you. So I think loads and loads going on in the world. Um, lots and lots of uh, challenges us for us. But let's start off by being dramatically spiritually healthy as churches and leaders. Let's think very hard about what laying foundations looks like. And let's clue ourselves up, particularly to um, how that then applies to some of the big cultural issues of the age. Otherwise, we're just going to just get pulled back and forth by every new wind and the buffeting of the waves, rather than being applying our secure foundations. It's mm. really good, really good. See, I told you, lots of wisdom, lots of wisdom and experience. <laughs> I didn't oversell at the beginning. Uh, very exciting, and I mean, I I love I love your answer on on several levels. Um, I, I think, you know, if. If we're, if, if we're getting so many new ideas coming through all the time, it, it's exhausting and unrealistic to expect every pastor and every church member to think they need to know what to say about all those issues. 
but actually it, it goes back to the old alpha illustration about the banknotes. How do you tell a forgery? It's by staring at the, the true, not by looking at every different type of forgery on the on the market. And it's the same with, like you said, if we're talking about, if the issues of the day are identity, meaning um, and related issues of our humanity, well, being fed the beautiful truth of who we are in Christ and who Christ has made us to be and where he's taking us and what like, humanity's for in the first place, that I think then is going to massively help how we can deal with all kinds of issues without having to become, you know, PhD in in all of the different I guess um, machinations is that the right word of different issues that come through um, it's not surprising if you start with with the truest human say well what's it like being united to him then like having his life flowing in our veins then everything else starts to swim into perspective doesn't it yeah and i think it's then when you start to see the saints as being a distinct people from the world because they know who they are not because they understand everything in the world but because they know who they are and those are very powerful people when you meet individuals that you you feel like with christ um, that that phrase he never entrusted himself to a man because he didn't he knew what was in a man like he was free from the claims that other people had on him because he didn't need them he knew who he was and he knew what he was called for a little a little while ago, I was um, doing uh, some uh, work with a therapist for some family reasons. And um, subsequently, this therapist uh, met some friends of ours, some Christian friends of ours, pastor and wife. And uh, this, uh, this pastor then came to me and said, I want you to know you've got an aura. And I said, what on earth are you going on about? And he said, well, we met we met the therapist who's been working with you. And after we had been chatting with her for about 15 minutes, she said, are you guys Christians? Because all you Christians have an aura. I, work, I do some stuff with this other couple. They've got an aura. And uh, he said, we did a little bit of a delicate GDPR dance without naming names to figure out if it was you. And it's you. You've got an aura. <laughs> and, and I just thought, now, this is really interesting. Because what, what that non-Christian was sensing was that there is something noticeably different about Christians. They're actually sensing the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they should. They don't know what it was. They didn't know what name to give it. But when the people of God are captivated by the Lord Jesus, you know, when, when after Pentecost they spilled out onto the street at nine o'clock in the morning and people went, you look a bit drunk. You know, because they were actually different and happy. Um, uh, People just notice the difference. Um, and I think that when Christians are captivated, people might not know what they're looking at, but they'll certainly be recognising you hope, um, integrity, stability, love. The fruit of the spirit is the barometer, isn't it? Um, that you now are somebody who has obligations not to the world, but to a different to a different king, um, they should be saying something else. So I was really pleased to hear that we we had a bit of an aura. And I think the more the world goes off beam, let's face it, the West has loosed its anchors from its previously Christian-y kind of heritage. It hopes it can keep the goods, but without the foundations, sooner or later it's going to realise it's not going to keep the goods either. And at that point... Oh, Philippians 2, may you shine like stars as you hold out the word of life. I think we're moving into an age of fresh opportunity. 
but Christians have got to be captivated. Got to be excited about Jesus. Wow. Oh man, that's really, really good. And it's so important that we're known for that rather than knowing for. We need to know what we think about all these issues, but we need to be known for. Um, being with Jesus as long as it's an aura and not an aroma we're all in <laughs> the aroma of life so far oh, okay <laughs> and my nine-year-old um for Christmas got me um a gift pack that had um links Africa greatest of all time shower gel and uh and deodorant um not because he's like wanted that for ages or anything and uh now he just goes, Dad, you just need to smell like the goat. <laughs> Jesus is the goat and we've got to have the aroma of life. Oh, man, look at that for a soundbite. Jesus is the goat. You heard it here first. Um, well, I mean, we're kind of skirting around an issue that we'll come on to talk about now, which I think the subject of your book uh, as the issue that we're skirting around, I guess, is how the, the what happens in the world seems to affect the church. And um, often the, the well, the church is made up of people who've come out of the world. And so is going to understandably be affected by the world in a lot of respects. But it's when that affect influences our leadership uh, and the culture of the community of Christians that becomes a problem. And I think with with attitudes that have, that have changed in the in the culture a lot around in recent years around leadership, uh, I'd just love to get your reflections on how you've seen attitudes specifically towards leadership wash up on the shores of the church, and then what do you think are some of the lessons that the church needs to learn about this? So we ought to start by just what about what we mean by leadership. That word, and they fill it with all kinds of content. I used to teach a master's course on leadership for a theological college, and I read every book that had been written in the UK on the subject for the previous 30 or 40 years. And the two major definitions that came out were either taking um, definitions from the world about what produced efficient results according to the metrics of the organisation in question, whether that was the military or commerce or whatever it was and saying just do that in church and that's christian leadership or um the other really really prevalent one was the um oh, what is this in a moment um the leadership is influence um kind of thing and i really really struggle to find that in the scriptures although i will uh, just come on to what I think the scriptural equivalent of that is in a minute. So um, back to Philippians 1, 25 and 26, Paul says, we want to work with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so you glory abundantly in Jesus with the character of humility in Christ Jesus among you. That seems to me to be a pretty good definition of a spiritually healthy church, a very concise definition, and I think it's a pretty concise definition of spiritually healthy leadership as well. This is what we want to do. The workers with people for their progress and joy in the faith, so they glory abundantly in Jesus. If we were to add in a couple more things to that, I would say, uh, listeners, go up and down the New Testament sometime and see how often um, leadership is put in terms of imitation. Follow me as I follow Christ. Or uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, such a good passage. Such a great church of Thessalonica. But First Thessalonians two says, oh, First Thessalonians one says, you um you received the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit, with power and deep conviction, in spite of severe suffering. 
and you became imitators of us and the Lord and the churches in Judea. Imitation, you can get other verses, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, the things you have heard from me and seen in me and received from me put into practice, imitate a lot of um, uh, My favorite one, probably, uh, first, um, what is it? Second Timothy 3.10, Paul says to Timothy what he has done for him. He says, you know about my teachings, purpose, way of life, love, faith, endurance, persecution, sufferings, the stuff that happened in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. He's taught him, but he's exposed his life to him as well. So Timothy is imitating Paul's passing on the baton. He's taken him with him. Timothy was outside the Ephesus amphitheater that lovely night when 24,000 people were shrieking, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I'm sure that was absolutely lovely for him. Um, imitation. And the other thing we really want to say, so I, I think that is the influence thing. But that's the Bible version of the influence thing. You're meant to be able to imitate me. You're meant to see my life. That's great. So it's influence not as a result of force of personality, but as a result of close proximity of character, should we say? Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing we want to say about it is that the sort of primary local picture of uh, leadership is shepherding. Because God's the great shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd. And when leaders go wrong in Ezekiel 34, they say, it says, you know, it's when shepherds stop leading the sheep and start feeding off the sheep. Interestingly, the two big times that King David goes wrong, yeah, David is the shepherd, without a shepherding, to shepherd Israel. The two big times he goes wrong is with Bathsheba, and Nathan comes along and exposes him with a parable about a guy who steals lambs. Oh, my goodness, the shepherd ceased being a shepherd. And the other one is right at the end of his ministry, when he's taking the census that he shouldn't have taken. And he sees the angel destroying the people of God and says, God, um, these are just sheep. Let the judgment fall on me. Uh, David was a pretty flawed shepherd, but finally he was a shepherd because that's the kind of thing he says. And we are under shepherds. So Paul says to the Miletus elders in Acts 20, you know, you shepherd the flock of God that he bought with blood. Same 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. Your shepherds are underneath the good shepherd, and your shepherding is leading them to be shepherded by him. So that's just by way of just framing this question, what do we mean when we talk about leadership? Don't just go for the worldly definitions and think that if you do it in church, it becomes Christian leadership. Our leadership is leadership of a different kind, different character, different ways of doing things, and certainly different metrics of success. And we might want to just tease apart that a little bit in a minute. So what, what have we been learning about, about leadership? Well, I think that we live in an environment in which authority and power are deeply distrusted. And in leadership relationships, authority and power are, they're just a given. Otherwise, parents can't parents, teachers can't teach, 
nobody can actually lead an organization, but people feel sold down the river by politicians and leaders in the world who they think are in it for them, who are feeding off the sheep. And I think we see that coming to churches. And then when we get the big scandalous stuff that does the rounds, people easily start to infer from that that it's it's everybody. This is just this is just how it works. Uh, when I talk about power, I mean having the ability to act. Doesn't mean it's right to act, but you can. And when I talk about authority, I mean having the right to act. And you can instantly see that those two things can go together, but they might not go together. And the question I think that should be in all of our minds is how, uh, by what authority do leaders act? And then how do they exercise the authority and power that they have? For the health of the flock, and in such a way that the flock are confident that they're being shepherded and not used. How do they know they're not becoming tools for the leader's vision? How do they know that the genuineness and authenticity is, is there? How can, how can they have confidence in shepherds? Um, yeah, how do, so we're under shepherds of the good shepherd. We're leading the flock to be fed and watered and nourished. Psalm 23, such a place, isn't it? And we are being fed and watered and nourished because we can't be workers with other people for their progress in the faith and their joy in the faith to the glory in Jesus. So that's not happening to us. So let's let, let's just sort of probe into this question of a power and authority use in in churches. And I think that the primary question that we need to ask is where does authority come from for church leaders? that gives them the right to act. And different kinds of churches have different views on that. So some think that spiritual authority is inherent to the individual leader and their calling and gifting from God. And the danger of that is that that person can then mandate whatever they think is right or indeed whatever they want. And you can quite easily see how that gets cultish. And most churches in the UK are pretty uneasy about that, not least when we see the fall of large-scale leaders who have become unquestionable and unaccountable. They're the person of God. You can't question them. So some think that the authority is inherent to the individual. Some think that leaders' authority is, is that they can only mandate uh, belief and behaviour that Scripture commands. So scripture is the authority and leaders are sort of secondary to that. Some think that you can only mandate what the congregation or the movement or the denomination has agreed. And some think that you can, it comes from some authority figure higher up the food chain and what they have taught. And in many churches, there may be a mixture of those. Uh, my personal view is that leaders' authority to mandate belief and behaviour of people in the church and church direction comes from what's clearly commanded in Scripture, because spiritual authority derives from God via his word. And that is not to say that leaders aren't often wise and experienced. 
But I think that authority only resides in leaders in as much as we're lined up to that. We don't dictate over individual consciences. So if you start to go beyond scripture, what you say might be wise and it might be right. But mandating people to do it if they don't agree is a step too far, I think. Which is not to say that churches can't say, if you want to be involved here and participate here, this is the way we do things. That's, that's a different question. But, for example, in a mentoring relationship, I would much rather that somebody um, uh, didn't do the right thing that I am telling them to do than did it just because I say so because that would be for them to do something that was right, but possibly against their conscience. And at that point, it becomes a wrong thing to do. Hmm. And so there does seem to be, I mean, we see this a lot, sorry, in, in scriptures, there does seem to be that the importance of the, the conscience and the, the faith levels of the church is held up by the apostle Paul very highly, that leaders aren't to trample or exercise their freedom. That's not just for the congregation, but for leaders. It seems that a lot of what we end up, though, with, with church leadership is, it's just, it, it's the, it's the, what's the word for it? it it's just um, the practical reality is we employ someone, we can't employ everybody. And so they end up making decisions on lots and lots of things that you might say, well, it's not technically, you haven't got authority from the scriptures for these decisions, but because you've got authority for these decisions, they just all blend together. They'll bleed into one another before long. You end up with people in employed leadership positions, just thinking, well, I'm basically a king. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And, um, so congregations are, generally speaking, not particularly good at knowing what the boundaries on leaders' authority are, and leaders are bad at self-limiting for the reasons that you just said. Where we go wrong on use of authority, I think, first of all, is when we overstep the bounds of where that authority boundary is. And some of the reasons, to start with, might look very, very good. So it might just be, hey, I'm expected to do everything. You know, I've just had all the authority and all the power handed to me to do whatever I like. And well, hey, um, it might be that if I don't, people will criticize me. It might be that there are expectations on me to do things that can't actually be done in Jesus's way. Um, it might be that if I just overstep the bounds of doing things with integrity, I might look like I get some very good win for the church or for God. It just required me doing something in a very slightly underhanded way, but nobody minds if the outcomes are good. So I will give you a very high odds that the first time leaders start to go wrong, it's when there's the opportunity to get something popular all that looks, you know, really good, but you just can't quite get it in the light. You know, you can't, you couldn't get it if you said in that leadership team meeting, would our policies and procedures allow me to do it quite like this? Uh, you can't get it unless you make sure that the decision is taken when that slightly awkward person's on holiday. You know, you know what I mean? Very, very subtly start doing what you think is Jesus's work, but not Jesus's way. And when you then get the win, 
Firstly, you can leverage more authority. And secondly, nobody questions it. Because everybody liked what the outcome was. But you've just demonstrated that there's some bad stuff going on in the DNA now. Um, something came in that, that shouldn't have come in at that point. Because all that stuff, all the, the New Testament exhortation about we do everything in the light to commend ourselves to everybody's conscience in the sight of God. Who we are as leaders got sacrificed on the altar of what we wanted to accomplish as leaders. Or what we were expected to accomplish as leaders. Now, one of the other things was um, something very interesting that, you know, you've got a small church, you employ a leader, can't employ everybody. So they get dumped with loads and loads of stuff and just make all the decisions. And there's another thing going on there as well, which is the temptation for churches large and small to set our metrics according to lots and lots of stuff. And it becomes very easy, whatever size you are, to say, we will do the most that we can with our capacity and resources and possibly a bit more rather than saying what's the maximum that we can do that is vibrantly spiritually healthy and undergirded with prayer because the amount that you can do is way more than that the amount that you can do spiritually healthily is less than that when you start with the spiritual healthiness question and then say, okay, well, you know, here's, here's a range of good things that we could do. We can't do all of them. What can we do spiritually healthily? And what if we try to do them at the moment, at the present time, will take us beyond the boundaries of that in time? That's really good. It strikes me, as you say, it, that there is a danger with when churches make quantitative vision statements a thing over qualitative vision statements you know we want to achieve x y and z is different from we want to be a b and c and what do you what are your reflections on that well um ray Auckland said something at one of our living leadership conferences last year that really stuck with me and it basically boiled down to do we want to be churches that are attractive because we have a million good events and activities going on and there's a real, real buzz around those? Or do we want to be attractive because of the presence of the Spirit of God and people just feeling so captivated by Jesus and so comforted and consoled in his love? that in his words, they're going to float out of there on Sunday morning going, do you know what? In my difficult life, I can just live for God like that this week. So, you know, what would it look like if all churches just became known as the places where above and beyond everything, you really matter to God? And I think that for me as a you know, 30 years in evangelical ministry, um, we, we're really activist. We, we really like our activities and our events. And you know, we've got those coming out of our ears. But I think a less good at spiritual formation of leaders. That then sort of comes back to the question of, as leaders, do we want, we want people to gather to us? No doubt about that. But do we want them to gather to us because we're great at putting on stuff that they find attractive or even doing great, you know, preaching or other kinds of ministry, whatever it is, uh, great pastoral ministry. Do we want them to gather, 
to that or do we want them to gather to us because we've been in the presence of God? They say, oh no, something's going on here. I am just going to get, I'm just going to get full of Jesus here. And the rest is a corollary of that. It's the overflow of it. Here's the problem as I perceive it. That if it's not the overflow, then you take all kinds of other good things and you use them as a substitute for spiritual healthiness. Everything either is downstream or flows out of vibrant spiritual healthiness, or it's a good-looking substitute for it. And there are some really good-looking substitutes for it. And you know, don't hear me saying that events and activities and all kinds of other stuff are all bad and wrong. I'm not, not saying that. But I am saying that that's very quickly becomes the core of what we're about as opposed to being united with Christ and being delighted worshippers of him. I want to get that foundation laid. Living in the love of God, united to Christ, experiencing his grace, Christ-like character, these kinds of things at the centre of what it means to be spiritual. Yeah. Well, I think um, there's two kind of streams i'd love to to go down from a lot of what you've just said one is to do with how we how we safeguard against leaders going through too many red flags and ending up in a place where they're committing spiritual abuse or creating toxic cultures but i think in light of what you're you're saying there i'd love to just go down this other stream which is how do we ensure that churches don't become toxic environments for leaders um, that that or narciss- I mean, someone else used the expression recently: narcissistic followers who just want leaders to do everything that they want for them all the time. Well, how, what advice or comments would you have on, yeah, safeguarding both churches from leaders, but leaders from churches? Somebody else said, um, "Church mobbing or bitey sheep." <laughs> yeah, and so in my in my ministry, I've seen a number of situations where leaders have abused churches there's no doubt about that but i think i've probably seen more of the other way around um now that's only one person's perspective and gotta be aware about that kind of statement you don't extrapolate from that to say it's all it's not all. so great starting verse i think for that is second corinthians 4 5 where um it says so we proclaim christ jesus as lord and us as your servants for Jesus's sake. Us as your servants for Jesus's sake. That is not us as your servants for your sake and your employees to just give you whatever you want. We are your servants so that he gets formed in you. So glorying in him. So very good verse just to put down uh, that kind of foundation. And then I think being as clear as possible about what church is, is really, really important, because otherwise, um, otherwise you get special interest groups who are just desperate for their particular activities to be run. Uh, I think the biggest resource sinks for leaders on that are generally speaking, third age ministries and kids and youth work. It's be very, very easy for those to become black holes because it's so easy to present the obvious need and opportunity that uh, that goes with it. Um, but back to this 
back to this question of um, yeah, bitey, bite, bitey sheep. Um, power dynamics are complicated things, and the real power in a church doesn't always lie in the leadership. Sometimes it's in powerful members or groups in the congregation. And most leaders know situations where leaders have been very badly dealt with by churches. And at the moment, we do live in quite a febrile climate where accusations against leaders, uh, threats against leaders can very be easily be made. And when they are, they can be made in very strong categories. So minor hurts get elevated into spiritual abuse, whatever we understand that term to mean quite easily, and they will be believed when they are. So I have seen instances where somebody raised a very minor hurt, and when they didn't get the outcome they wanted it, restated it in the language of safeguarding and spiritual abuse, which escalated it into an utter conflagration really rapidly. And then immature elders were unable to cope with it, and things disintegrated very fast with huge damage being done. Now, there are numerous clear examples out there, well-documented of leaders exceeding their authority and seriously damaging, sometimes criminally. Uh, but even if not criminally, certainly in ways that have nothing to do with Jesus and the love of God. I think it's very easy for those who are familiar with those situations to then read back the worst of those into the normal hurts of church life. And then you get this rapid escalation that can go from, I am upset, to I am hurt, to I am offended, to I am abused, and therefore you're a spiritual abuser. Quite quick. You get this escalatory spiral with no de-escalation mechanisms. And when that happens, um, it's pretty understandable if leaders take fright because they know that that kind of allegation is easily believed and it can be ministry ending even if it's untrue so they then bunker down and deal with it badly and that makes it more likely to become self-fulfilling what's the answer to that um so we can point out some obvious things, and the four that I point out in my book are transparency, plurality, accountability, and strong embodiment in the church community rather than professional distance. And people want to have a, a look at that in the book. We, we talk quite a bit about that. Uh, there are no panaceas, but um, you know, if you are if you have good policies and procedures, they help. Some leaders don't like those because they feel too constrained by them, but, but we shouldn't. But here are a few other things that I think make de-escalation more likely and healthy handling of these kinds of things more likely. And the absolute number one is mature, resilient elders. Plural, never alone. The climate makes sole leadership very dangerous, I think, at the moment, and it was unbiblical anyway. But an over, a much overlooked verse, I think, is that one in 2 Timothy 3, where they're li he's listing the characteristics of elders. And then just dropped in there is ability to manage your, your household well. That's more than just, you know, UK nuclear family household in New Testament times was probably quite large. But, and I think underlying that is a sense of if stuff goes wrong in your household, 
are you going to be able to are you resilient to that um are you going to be wise and godly and mature when stuff's going belly up in your family well if so and you're able to teach the gospel you might be appropriate to be an elder in a church i just wonder if we have looked to appoint elders too young when actually we need to ask um you know everything's fine at the moment are you going to be up to it when things get really ugly because we need to know your resilience to that. Are you going to be godly, wise, mature for the church when it's really costly? And you may have to take some flack for not giving the answers that people are desperate to hear who are making accusations against you. So I think mature, resilient elders is critical. The second is good, transparent processes for investigation and complaint. And the church where the leaders are the ones who put those in place most proactively are likely to be the ones where they use least, I think. Things like external critical friends, you know, school governors always have external critical friends they can go to. Churches have great processes for safeguarding with children and vulnerable adults. I think we need similarly diligent processes regarding leaders and power and authority. It's just part of our duty of care. And done well, it means that people have great confidence that they're being well shepherded, which means I think that when people try to mob leaders, it's much less likely to, to succeed. Because the whole church is basically confident in leaders and they know that they're not being used as tools for leaders project or food for wolves dressed as shepherds. And when leaders have good processes for holding leaders to account, um, actually, it means that it works for the whole church as well. I like to, I have this picture in my mind. It's just a picture very recently. And it's sort of, just imagine a cross section through a, a deep reservoir. And this reservoir is full of weighty water. It's under pressure. It's a reservoir of grace that I have in my mind. When that reservoir is full, it's able to absorb the shocks and the stuff that happens on the surface, even big waves. When it's nearly empty, the waves swamp everybody. And underlying everything, I think, is the question about our church's really deep reservoirs of grace. If not, what's the blockage? What's, what's stopping that? Or what are the cracks whereby all the water's flown out? Um, how, do, how do we make sure that the context of our local church is just so deep in the grace of God, in the love of God, that it means that when the bad stuff that you're referring to happens, it, it, it's immediately seen as not of God. Um, couple of other suggestions. So Matthew 18 is, is very interesting, I think. I'm very cautious about what I'm about to suggest. It's definitely not appropriate everywhere, and I've seen at least one instance where I think it went really horribly wrong. Um, so Matthew 18 says, if somebody has something against you, go and see them on your own. And if they won't listen to you, then you take one or two people with them, with you. 
And if they won't listen to that, what you do is take it to the church. Not, hey, we'll take it to the elders and they will just absorb it and deal with it confidentially. And I have seen instances where elders thought that that was the appropriate thing to do. And that just gave an awful lot of power to the person mobbing because they thought I can do what I like. And they are so concerned for me as pastoral shepherds, they're never going to expose my behavior to the church. Whereas if they had said, you're clearly not happy with the way that we have led and the answers that we've given under these circumstances, it is your right to take it to the church. Shall we do that together? I'm absolutely certain in one instance that the person would have gone absolutely no way because they wouldn't want their behavior to be exposed. And I've certainly, well, two other things I've seen, I've seen other instances where that person would have said, that's just bullying behavior by threatening to set the church on me. And I've seen other, uh, one instance where I think a leader did try to do that to the church, did it really, really badly, and it was bullying. But I do think we've got to be very careful about that. But in Matthew 18, you've got take it to the church. And indeed, in the parable that immediately follows, um, you've got people um, taking bad behavior um, among another servant straight to the master. And we're not, no process. They were just going straight to the top. This is dreadful. This has to, this has to. The good processes make everybody safe. Um, the absolutely critical thing, I think, leadership that's done in the light everything in the light let the sunshine in as much as you possibly can mm. go wrong in the dark what does in what, what does it in above the light rarely behind closed doors always with other people present what practical things would you um give advice on how to do things in the light i think the very first thing is tell everybody how it works so were I to go to a new church, the very first thing I would do would be to sit down with the church elders and then probably with the church and say, listen, folks, here's how leadership works. Here's what to expect. Here's what not to expect. And, um, the person who is most likely to abuse their power and authority in this situation is me because I've got most of it. So a few years ago in Living Leadership, we were tightening up all our policies about complaint and grievance and that kind of stuff. And I basically had one principle for that, which was that um, the weakest person who is ever connected with us has to be able to use those against me, the CEO, safely to them, because otherwise they're just not worth the paper they're written on. Uh, we might want to come onto organizational cultures and how they go wrong. But one of the things that makes organizational cultures go wrong is if the most powerful people are the only ones who indemnified against uh, against processes that apply to everybody else. If you can critique everything apart from the senior leaders, they're the ones who are going to go wrong. But you want really good, transparent processes and thresholds to make sure that people don't use things mischievously. You know, that's, that's got to be part of that package. But for everybody to know how this works so that everybody can have confidence is really critical. 
In Living Leadership, we have um, what we call leaders' commitment scheme. We have two documents. One is about is a covenant that a church makes to love its leaders well, and the other is a covenant that leaders make to the church for boundaried practice on their leadership. And the idea is that you make this agreement, church and leaders, together, and then stick it all on the website so that everybody knows how it works. We put our safeguarding policies on, on the website so everybody knows how that works. Why not put this there as well? At the very least, even if nobody ever uses that stuff, being able to signpost when somebody says, you know, is, is this right? Was that meant to work like that? We say, actually, no, we can be held to account by publicly available standards, uh, charters of leadership healthiness. So that would be one very practical thing to do. Um, systems of complaint that are safe for everybody, especially for the complainants. Because otherwise what happens is that things accelerate very quickly and people go from saying, I've got some concerns to saying I'm a victim. And then leaders go into a flat spin and say, well, we've got to protect ourselves from you then. Um, so finding a way to do that safely so that it is done proportionately to the level of the complaint and doesn't get out of hand very quickly. I do think that external critical friends and mediators and the like are very important. But perhaps also then it's just worth just probing into this question about how organisational cultures go wrong. Um, I'm adjacent at the moment to several situations where organisational cultures, large and small, have, they still say we're gospel centred on the tin, but frankly, some dire things have gone on. But without any big red flag sins that would stop you in your tracks and make you sit up and take notice until something catastrophic happens. And how they go wrong is like this, inch by inch. Little decision by little decision, a thousand little accommodations. Oh, it's worth putting up with that because of that good result. Oh, that person's just a little bit eccentric. It's not that they're a manipulative bully. Um, until you end up way off course, still saying you're true to the gospel, still saying that you're being transparent as leaders, but actually it's now a narrative. You're now telling a narrative about yourself, possibly even to yourself. As uh, a good New Frontiers friend said to me recently, a little bit like a you know load of smelly people in a smelly room with the door shut who have stopped smelling how bad it pongs until somebody opens the door and says it reeks in here. So you go wrong when you have no means to examine your own organisational culture in ways that are objective and, That's really and good. healthy. And I guess in touching on the importance of external friends, you touch on the, the idea as well of informal and formal aspects of leadership and governance within a church, uh, which you, you talk quite a bit about in the book as well, because recognising that a lot of spiritual leadership happens in the informal sphere of life. Uh, yes, you have a title, but people aren't responding to you because of your title, but because of your, you know, your influence over them, because you're a man or woman of God, you, they respect and appreciate your, uh, what you have to say and your wisdom. And so um, therefore, there's the need to have formal processes and formal structures of authority. Could you say a bit more about that as well? 
Absolutely. So there are basically two types of leadership that are legitimate. The first is formal, legitimized, legitimated authority. You are given authority by the church to fulfill certain functions on its behalf. And everybody knows how that works. And there are usually policies and procedures and other people round about and checks and balances. And, and it's in the light. And then you've got this second type of leadership, which is um, still completely in the light, but it is informal. It's exactly what you say, Jez. It is our wisdom. It's our cachet of trust. Um, it's the fact that people like being around us. It's the fact that we are wise and experienced as leaders very often. And that's all entirely fine. Nobody wants to be pastored by somebody who isn't very good at that kind of stuff. The difficulty arises, of course, in that the primary place that authority resides is now the relationship which is very often just one-to-one. -one. It's just you trusting me. What happens if I go wrong then? So, like I said before, I'll give you very strong odds that when leaders go wrong, it's when I try to get something with that cachet of trust and credibility that I can't get formally. Um, I'll just suggest you do something and you'll do it just because I say so. Um, yeah, and we all, anybody who's been in leadership for more than about five years knows that that second form is massively more influential than the first type. More than that, um, if you really build up your relational authority among people, with people, and your likableness and your winsomeness, after a while, you can actually trade it for formal power you can just get the people who like you into positions where they'll do what you say and then you create an inner ring and then anything that you want you can just present as a fait accompli leaders who only ever gather around them people who are going to say yes to them i can think of some situations where leaders gathered around them elders who said yes to them and then stopped them being genuinely um you know, genuinely responsible actors and just turn them, the eldership, into a focus group, really, for them, as opposed to a plurality of shepherds, leaving all of the big decision-making in the hands of the, 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 the chief leaders and no real ability for anybody to, to gainsay that. That's bound to go wrong sooner or later. So, yeah, finding ways to do plurality of shepherding well and also finding ways to be as savvy as you can possibly be to the soft power that you have. Asking questions like, what power do I actually have in my leadership role? Am I overusing that? Am I underusing that? Am I abusing that? Who would tell me? Because I'd love somebody to have a Nathan conversation with me before I do the stuff with Bathsheba, not afterwards, kind of, kind of stuff. I'd much rather somebody battered my office door and nailed me to the carpet um, before, before I go horribly down the slippery slope. Put in place mechanisms to be as savvy as you can possibly be. Leaders might like to download a free resource 
um, that goes along with my book. It's quite a comprehensive one. So even if you never get the book, I think it's still useful to you. Um, it's called um, uh, The Powerful Leader's Digital Resource. Go download it from the IBP website. Possibly I'll send you that. You put it in the, the podcast uh, show notes. And at the end of it, you will see a table that uh, goes from healthy leadership to progressively uh, less healthy and then more abusive leadership. And I was really helped um, when I showed um, a very draft version of that to a pastor who took it away and said, oh, I could use this with my eldership. And they came back and said, actually, we've made it much better. I hope you don't mind. Because what we added at the bottom was a section that said, um, are there any clearly observable signs that would suggest that either our leaders or the church are in at-risk categories when it comes to use of power and authority? And I think that is a brilliant question, and there are some questions on the resource to help you think that through. What is it that would be spottable? How would I know? Who would tell me? The question that I most like to ask is this. What could I put in place? What could I ask other people to put in place that would protect me and everybody else from the worst version of me? The worst version of me is not very nice. The worst version of any of us isn't very nice. It'd be really nice to just expose ourselves to the light sufficiently that other people have permission to work with us to pursue spiritual healthiness and to just absolutely cut in on that if they see anything that they think is is not heading in that direction. We never do it alone. That doesn't happen. We're not objective. The heart's wicked. Um, we deceive ourselves really easily. So let's covenant with others that I'll be that person for them and them for me. And, uh, and just really put in place everything that we can possibly think of. Now, I think that in the church in the UK at the moment, we're right at the beginning of that kind of thinking. I think that the Lord is going to reveal more. I suspect we're going to see more mess um, as that kind of happens. Every time we do is an opportunity to get on our knees, to repent where we need to, to say, Lord, more light. We just need more sunshine here. Um, show us how, what went wrong, how to do it better, how to not go there. So every time we see a scandal, it is an opportunity for some good self-reflection and to say, how do we not be those people? Because those people didn't expect to be those people. You know, Paul says to the Miletus elders, after I've gone, wolves will come in and try to devour the flock, and will some will arise up from among your own number. Now, did he know that some there were already predisposed to be wolves? Doesn't say so. Um, maybe he was just savvy to the fact that any of us can go wrong. I've certainly seen situations in which somebody that I never thought was going to end up wolfish did and seen some of the journey that took them there. Well, let's not just go, oh, terrible, 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 those wicked people. Let's go, no, that could be me. There's no intrinsic reason that it couldn't be. And then put in place before the Lord as good mechanisms as we know how. 
it's really 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 important conversation um and so much of what you're saying needs to be heeded and heard i think when we spoke in the summer briefly you and i you you said uh, if ever there was a time where churches could have been naive on this that time has passed we must put this sort of thing in place for the sake of the health of our churches and for the health of our leaders uh, so i think many people listening to this will be downloading or certainly we'll put the description for people to download that free resource and to go through the audit with their eldership team but i like what you i mean what you said toward the end there as well the importance of working with elders uh, to help them see some of these things and to help them with the aspects of their character that are likely to go astray um, because you know, in your beginning description of what Christian leadership ought to look like, one of the descriptions was working with people that Christ would be formed in them, working with individuals for them, for their good. And I think it's leaders are often the ones who are most overlooked um, in the church. The shepherds are often the least shepherded in the flock. And they're also the ones that need to be shepherded the most if they're giving out so much. Um, and that might be a, a, just a, a great way of us as we kind of come into land with the conversation for you to tell us a bit more about the work of living leadership and some of the ways that you are actively trying to shepherd the shepherds oh thank you for asking so living leadership has been around 17 or 18 years um, one of the first things that um that happened was that i was having lunch one day with a couple of pastors and we were just talking about what we would most like for the care of our own souls and marriages that would keep us walking in the grace of god and we started making notes on the back of a napkin I really wish I'd kept the napkin. But after a little bit, we looked at what we'd written and thought, that doesn't exist, at least not where we were. Um, so maybe we should try something. And we rang 80 friends in pastoral ministry and said, um, if we put on something that is pure soul care, it's just you and walking in the grace of God. Are you interested? And 80 came. And um, a retired Baptist guy helped us put it together. Um, Oh, my computer's doing something a bit odd here. And said, I want to set the tone of safety by talking about doubt and failure in leadership. And the talk that he gave just opened the floodgates on our tiny little pastoral team and has done ever since. And what we learned was that as soon as you created something that was safe for leaders and critically spouses, that the uptake was, I mean, it was a deluge. Um... And so those are called the Pastoral Refreshment Conference. It does precisely what it says on the tin. It is an oasis of grace and prayer that is safe. And I love it. It's the total high point of my year. Uh, and we run um, one of those at High Lee and another couple up in the Lake District in conjunction with Keswick Ministries. One thing we noticed after a little while, we went to start, started running two back to back, and all of our regulars came on the first and all of our newcomers came on the second which meant that for one year we had a direct contrast between people who had been used to a grace environment and regular encouragement to be spiritually well formed in christ and to give attention to their spiritual lives and the second set of people hadn't had that encouragement for the previous six years so the difference was completely profound utterly utterly profound and that really nailed home for me that regular encouragement to be in the grace of God is so critical. We do leak, we do drain out, and we're rubbish at doing that for ourselves. So if you want spiritually healthy leaders, we've got to create and sustain that grace environment. 
And uh, that's really what we do in living leadership. We have many opportunities for that that go from, uh, we've got a, a network of nearly 40 pastors of pastors around the UK and Ireland who are able to walk with people, conferences, one-offs. We have uh, a devotional hour every other Wednesday morning that is just purely that called Refresh Online. People can have a look, www.livingleadership.org. What we're about is spiritually vibrantly healthy leaders for spiritually vibrantly healthy churches. Well, the second thing I want to say is um, exactly where you just honed in there at the end, that we think, and we have yet to make too much inroads into this, though we'd like to, that the single biggest question for training leaders um, in the church in the UK at the moment is the folk elder kind of level who carry huge spiritual burdens in other people's lives and very rarely get very much at all by way of training that is adequate to the demands that are made upon them. You know, they're generally speaking wise and mature older Christians and that's great, but we are now moving into an environment where a lot more is going to be demanded of them and where the challenges are going to get greater. I think that figuring out ways to um, build up in the faith, those kinds of folk is critical for doing the Ephesians for the body building itself up in love kind of stuff with every supporting ligament doing its work. So I would strongly commend all churches and the whole of New Frontiers listening in on this to give a great deal of attention to what it looks like to develop and sustain really well-equipped and spiritually healthy elders and to think very hard about the team dynamics that they work within there as well. I think that's that's a critical issue and will go a long way to answering a lot of the things that we've talked about. If I could say one last thing, I'd say it's very tentatively. Um, I'm not a New Frontiers guy, but I like to think of myself as kind of an honorary New Frontiers guy. But at the moment, with large movements, large diverse movements, the opportunities for um, any local situation to go wrong, be mishandled, and then for bad stories about that to go all over social media um, is much, much more likely than for people to tell good stories and then assume that all leaders are like the worst leaders. And I think for any burgeoning, rapidly growing, large movement, that's a systemic issue that I do think in the current climate needs us to look at in systemic ways for, for what healthiness looks like so that, um, that the good stuff does, just doesn't get um, disproportionately edited out by the bad stuff. So, yeah, offer that for, for what it's worth. Uh, we want to make sure that our organisational cultures are spiritually healthy as well as just our us as individual leaders mm, wonderful oh marcus there's been so much that you've said that i've really resonated with that i'm sure will have served people um hugely i think it's really really important that we take heed and listen to a lot of what you're saying i really would recommend anybody who's been interested in this conversation to download or sorry or buy or you don't have to download it you can get an actual physical copy of marcus's book powerful leaders uh, when church leadership goes wrong and how to prevent it and also engage with and connect with the work of living leadership i should say this as well marcus i love following you on twitter you're one of the most 
positive and uplifting people I can find in the Twitter sphere, which is increasingly a, a corrupt and toxic place of just meanness. I love what you're saying online and Twitter. So everyone out there should follow Marcus on Twitter as well if you want to be encouraged and strengthened in your leadership and Christian life. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for your time to get, uh, today. It's been a joy to talk with you. It's a real pleasure.